Have you counted the cost of obedience? Welcome, it's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day. Not satisfied with just throwing a little religion into our lives as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others. They were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue the missionary story of Amy Carmichael. We'll hear from Ed McCauley, one of those killed in Operation Alka, as he talks about Jim and Elizabeth and their mastery of the language. Also, Elizabeth has some thoughts for us today about martyrdom. And she thinks about John and Betty Stam. That's later today. Right now, part nine of the Amy Carmichael story about the cost of obedience. Gateway to Joy 282. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about the cost of obedience. Last week, we talked about Amy Carmichael, that amazing Irish missionary to India whose life has so profoundly affected my own and the lives of probably countless thousands of others. Amy Carmichael began her work in India as an itinerant evangelist, and she did that for six or seven years with a small band of Indian women called the Starry Cluster. That was a name that other Indians had given them. And from the reports of others, I would gather that Amy Carmichael's work as an itinerant evangelist was very effective. But of course, if you're going to do the work of God and you're going to proclaim unequivocally the truth of God, there are going to be some battles. And there were plenty of spiritual battles. We told you about some of them last week. And then in the course of that itineration, Amy began to get rumors and hints of a nefarious traffic that was connected with the worship in Hindu temples. At first, she couldn't believe her ears, but she began to investigate, and she learned that indeed it was true that little girls were given to the temples, sometimes when they were babies, sometimes when they were very small children, and they were reared to be temple prostitutes. These were not unwanted children. These were not orphans, but they were very often beautiful children, talented children, sometimes high caste little girls who were prepared for a lifetime of temple prostitution in which they were available for the priests and for any male worshipers who might come. Amy began to pray that the Lord would enable her in some way to save some of these little children. It wasn't until five or six years had gone by in her itineration that she met one of these women. At first, she did not know who she was, but she recognized her as a very well-educated woman. She knew the classics. She knew poetry. And when Old Blessing, one of the members of Amy's band, gave her testimony, this woman responded with towering scorn and derision she teach me something? And then it began gradually to dawn on Amy that this woman must indeed be one of the temple prostitutes of whom she had heard. 
And she prayed earnestly for some way to save these little girls. The passion of Amy Carmichael's life was love. Love for the Lord, first of all, and then love for everybody else, particularly for whom God had given her spiritual responsibility. She used to pray the prayer of Jeremy Taylor, Lord, do thou turn me all into love and all my love into obedience, and let my obedience be without interruption. That's one of the prayers of my life, too, and I would strongly urge you to make it one of the prayers of yours. Let me read it again. Lord, do thou turn me all into love, and all my love into obedience, and let my obedience be without interruption. But I would warn you, if you pray that prayer, it will cost you something. Love has a price tag. Love always means sacrifice, and obedience costs. As the band of Indian women was traveling with Amy, they began to pray about little things that might be hindering their work. It was the custom for Indian women, and I believe it still is today, to wear quite a bit of jewelry, earrings, sometimes nose rings, often a jewel set into one side of the nostril, bangles on their wrists, rings, and bangles on their ankles. They, of course, had jewelry, like everybody else, but they began to believe that this was not appropriate for the kind of work that they were trying to do and for those who follow him who was poor. And so they began to seek the Lord's will as to whether or not they should abandon their jewelry, and they came to the conclusion that they should. This was a great shame to an Indian woman to wear no jewelry. It was a symbol of honor. A young unmarried woman could command a higher-class husband if she had plenty of jewelry. If she wanted to marry a man with a college degree or a master's degree, then she needed to wear more jewelry. But these women felt that it was out of place for them, and they prayed, Lord, thou didst empty thyself for me. I empty myself for thee. They were severely criticized for this, not only by non-Christians, but even by fellow missionaries. It was not the custom for a woman to go without jewelry. I don't know what application this may have for you today, but very often I think the Lord speaks to us in a still small voice about some apparently little thing and asks, would you be willing to give that up for me? And will we respond with their prayer, Lord, I empty myself for you? Things that look harmless to us sometimes stand in the way of the work that God wants us to do. Many years later, after they had made this decision, these women discovered that there was a very practical reason, in addition to the spiritual reasons that God had given them, they discovered that they were not attacked by robbers. Robbers were very common in that section of South India in those days, and when the word got around that the women from Donavur never wore any jewelry, then obviously it was not worthwhile to stop their bandies, their little ox carts, 
and discover whether they had any jewelry on them because they knew that it wouldn't be there. There was tremendous cost involved for a Hindu woman who became a Christian. A man said to Amy Carmichael one day, she shall burn to ashes first before she gets baptized. She may go out dead if she likes, but go out living never. It was one thing to profess Christianity. It was another thing to go so far as a public baptism. But these women had determined to obey God at all costs and to take all risks. Amy told one story that is indelibly fixed in my own mind that illustrates the power of caste in South India at that time. She told about going into a house where she saw a little boy of three or four who seemed to be suffering with his eyes. He was lying in a swinging bag hung from the roof of the house, and he was crying the whole time they were there. Two months later, she visited the same house. He was still lying there crying, but his cries were weary and much weaker. This is what she wrote. They lifted him out. I should not have known the child, the pretty face drawn, full of pain, the little hands pressed over the burning eyes. Only one who has had it knows the agony of ophthalmia. They told me he had not slept, not even the measure of a seed, for three months. Night and day he cried and cried. But he doesn't make much noise now, they said. He couldn't, poor little lad. I begged them to take him to the hospital at Palamkota, but they said to go to a hospital was against their caste. The child lay moaning so pitifully it wrung my heart, and I pleaded and pleaded with them to let me take him, if they would not. Even if his sight could not be saved, something could be done to ease the pain, I knew, but no, he would die away from home, and that would disgrace their caste. Then he is to suffer till he is blind or dead? I asked, and I felt half wild with the cold cruelty of it. What can we do, they asked. Can we destroy our caste? Oh, I did blaze out for a moment. I really could not help it. And then I knelt down among them all, just broken with the pity of it, and prayed with all my heart and soul that the good shepherd would come and gather the lamb into his arms. I can hardly bear to write it. But you have not seen the little wasted hands pressed over the eyes and then falling helplessly, too tired to hold up any longer. And you have not heard the weak little wails, and to think it need not have been. The last thing I heard them say as we left the house was, Cry softly, or we'll put more medicine in. The little hands tightened over the poor eyes as he tried to stifle the sobs and cry softly. Those women were not heartless, but they would rather see their baby die in torture by inches than dim with one breath the luster of their brazen escutcheon of caste. The power of caste was one of the tremendous obstacles that Amy Carmichael was up against. And she prayed that God would give her ways of breaking through. The cost to you and me in modern times in our country is going to be different. We're up against different manifestations of the same power of evil that Amy Carmichael was up against. What Paul describes in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness from the very headquarters of evil. Will you stand against that evil in whatever place God has put you today? God looks for the faithful carrying out just of today's work, for the faithful, trustful acceptance of today's conditions, and a constant looking to him for instruction and correction. He'll give you that if you're willing to pay the cost of obedience. The Cost of Obedience, Part 1. That's Part 9 of the Amy Carmichael story. Let's hear from a missionary. In fact, it was one of the men who was killed at Operation Alka, Ed McCauley. You'll hear his voice as he talks about Jim and Elizabeth, sometimes known as Betty, and their mastery of the language. Because our work here in Quito, at least our time here in Quito, is for the same purpose, and that is to learn the Spanish language. We feel that's our purpose in staying here in Quito, and we feel that's our job to do. And so that's what we're trying to do, is learn the Spanish. And so that perhaps is our number one request as well, that we might have the Spanish quickly, we might have it accurately, and we might be able to use it in a way that we might present the gospel to these people in their own native tongue. And I believe it's a real testimony here. We are told by the nationals, by the folks right here in the home in which we live, that, that some of the assembly missionaries, I'm thinking of Jim and Pete particularly, and Miss Betty Howard, they have acquired the Spanish in such a way that uh, they've lost their American accent. And they tell us that when they speak Spanish, they speak like a national. And that's a real testimony. It gives them real access to present the gospel to these people. And so praise the Lord for that, and pray that we too might have the language in this manner, that we might present the gospel acceptably and uh, clearly in their native tongue. That was missionary Ed McCauley. Later on, Elizabeth will have some thoughts on martyrdom as part of a series she did on the triumph of John and Betty Stam. Right now is part 10 of the Amy Carmichael story. It's Gateway to Joy 283. Not very long ago, I was misunderstood and criticized about something. And I can hear somebody out there saying, so what else is new? Is there anyone listening who doesn't know what it's like to be misunderstood and criticized? I wouldn't call it persecution, but sometimes we feel as though we are being falsely persecuted. And the Lord brought to my mind one of the less known verses of the hymn Beneath the Cross of Jesus. It says, O safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet. And I thought of the cross as being that safe and happy shelter into which I could flee from the misguided judgments and criticisms, and it happened to be, in this case, of close friends. And I wrote this down on a little slip of paper just for my own edification. And as a little prayer, I said, Lord, I lay at the foot of the cross my care for my reputation because the particular kind of criticism put my reputation on the line. I lay at the foot of the cross the impressions that I make, my desire to be vindicated, my longing for justice, my disquiet 
at having to go through the next whole weekend without any vindication. My hurt, my impatience, wanting a solution for this thing right now. Well, back to Amy Carmichael. We've been talking about Amy Carmichael, an Irish missionary to India. Amy Carmichael suffered criticism, even from fellow missionaries, and she suffered real persecution from some of those whom she was trying to reach. But it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And you remember Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He speaks of the seed that is sown on rocky ground. It stands for the man who, on hearing the word, accepts it at once with joy. But as it strikes no root in him, he has no staying power. And when there is trouble or persecution on account of the word, he falls away at once. Do we know people like that? Most of us do, I think, who accept the word of God instantly with joy. But because it doesn't strike root, it has no staying power. There's such a lack of perseverance and courage and staying power and stick to nowadays, it seems, in people's character, do you think? And when there is trouble or persecution, Jesus said, on account of the word, he falls away at once. If anything doesn't work out just exactly the way we'd like them to work out, sometimes we're tempted to say, forget it. Especially if we're working in a way that we think is serving the Lord and nobody appreciates us, nobody thanks us. We're not really suffering the kind of persecution that many Christians in many parts of the world are suffering. Political persecution imprisonment, limitations on Christian gatherings, many things like that we know virtually nothing about in our country. But in India, when Amy Carmichael first went out there at the end of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, there were some things that no one had ever written about, certainly no missionary had ever reported. And Amy began writing a book called Things As They Are. She was a woman of scrupulous honesty. She absolutely refused to sweeten the pill or paint a rosy picture where the picture was really black. And she set forth as fully, as straightly, and without varnish as she possibly could the actual condition of things as they were in India at that time. Not only the successes, but also the reverses. Not only the beautiful side, but also the dark side. And she was misunderstood by her constituency, her fellow missionaries, and when she sent the book to a publisher, it was immediately rejected as being too negative. For example, she tells one story of a Hindu woman who was ill, and Amy had been doing her best to try to give her one remedy after another, and nothing had done any good. And she began greedily grabbing at everything and haggling over the bottles and the corks. She said, we don't give bottles as a rule. We give medicine. The people bring their own bottles. 
and this lady was trying to do her in in every possible way, always guarding herself from danger by refusing anything which looked powdery, for we are supposed to delude the unwary by getting them to eat, drink, or inhale some sort of powder. That was one of the many rumors that went around about the dangers involved in getting in contact with these white people. This woman was quite sure that if only she went on changing the remedies often enough, I would get tired of bringing the wrong ones and would produce the one genuine article which she was certain would cure her. Why don't you bring it, she would say after every fresh trial. Don't you know that by helping a Brahmin you will acquire great merit? She never dreamed of being in the least grateful for what we were trying to do. She was condescending a long way down to let us do anything for her. And then one day she said, As you have no medicine for my body, have you got medicine for my soul? And I gladly told her yes. By means of this soul medicine, will my soul regain its health? Oh, how gladly I said yes. And how may one drink this soul medicine? So I told her. Then, by listening to the words of God and believing them, one receives soul medicine? So the medicine is received through the ear instead of the mouth and absorbed by the heart instead of by the digestive organs? She seemed to have gotten it very clearly. There's nothing else to do? One has only to listen and let the words catch? Then one understands them and one's heart believes them and so to the soul comes health. It's not difficult, she said. Then she turned with a sudden twist and flung the two medicine bottles into my lap. So that is how you delude us, she said. But the words came with a sort of hiss. First you tried to get me to eat your powder done up in a pill. Then you tried to get me to listen to your book's words, which it appears by entering the ear affect the mind and the heart. Then raising herself up and glaring at me like an old tiger cat at a mouse, she pointed with her skinny old hand to the street. Go! Do you think I will allow your medicine to get to my heart? Go! You have no medicine that will cure my body. I want none to cure my soul. Did you ever know a Brahmin drink your medicine? Go! She used the word used in speaking to a servant, and then addressing the onlookers went on pointing to me in a very disdainful fashion. Does she think I bore the contamination of her presence, she who eats flesh and mingles with low-caste people, for the sake of her soul-deluding book medicine? Let her go. I have no use for her. I have no use for her Lord Jesus. Let them both go. It gives you a glimpse, doesn't it, of what missionary work may at times entail. Amy had been praying that the Lord would enable her in some way to save some of the children that were committed to Hindu temples for purposes of prostitution. And in answer to her prayer, a little seven-year-old girl named Prina escaped from her temple education for prostitution and led by an angel, Amy believed, was brought directly to Amy's porch. They took her in. She told her story. People came after her, of course, but Amy looked into the legal aspects and discovered that the child was not their property, legally speaking, and she was asked, the child, Prina, was asked whether she wanted to stay with Amy or go back to the temple, and she chose to stay with Amy. This was the very first child that Amy was able 
to take care of out of temple prostitution. And then follows a remarkable story of how one by one the Lord began to bring babies and other small children to her, babies and children who had been dedicated to the temple prostitution but had not yet been put into the temple itself. Prina was the only child that ever escaped from the temple after having once been in the clutches of the prostitutes. Prina began telling Amy things which Amy said darkened the sunlight, things unspeakable, things unheard of that went on routinely in connection with the temple worship of South India at that time. And she began itinerating again, sleuthing for children, and finally realizing, as the Lord began to bring these babies one by one to her, that she was going to have to give up her itinerant evangelism, give up what was clearly the work of God, give up what God had given her a gift to do. But Amy had become a mother, and when a mother is given children, then she must give up some things for which she is obviously gifted. She must give up things which she feels she has a right to do, things which God has blessed, because, as the Tamil proverb says, children tie the mother's feet. And Amy Carmichael was willing to allow her feet to be tied, she said, for the sake of him whose feet were once nailed. Obedience always costs. Gateway to Joy 283, The Cost of Obedience Part 2, which is the 10th in the series, the 24-part series on the story of Amy Carmichael. Well, before we go, Elizabeth had some thoughts when she was talking about John and Betty Stam. As she thought about martyrdom. You have gathered correctly that both John and Betty Stam were beheaded. Remember her prayer of consecration? Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Could she know, back then when she was a young woman, perhaps a teenager when she wrote that prayer, what that cost would be? Think of those three words, at any cost. I was one of thousands who were inspired by their testimony. And I wanted to pray that prayer too. I wanted to put myself totally at God's disposal, to be that corn of wheat that would fall into the ground and die. And I confess that I have been a little bit envious at times, that I was not given the same privilege. And it is not given to many in America, at least, literally to die because of their staunch refusal to deny Christ. But we who follow Jesus Christ, we who wish earnestly and honestly to take up the cross, which means suffering, which means torture, which means shame, to take up the cross and follow him, we are given the privilege of offering ourselves entirely to him as a living sacrifice, willing to die to self 
and to give up our own plans and purposes. To accept God's will, as did the Virgin Mary, when she gave herself without stint to God and said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Do anything you want with me, Lord. Let it happen, as you say. During a broadcast about the missionaries, John and Betty Stamm, that was Elizabeth talking about martyrdom. We're just about done for today. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, along with you as you jog, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, talks, Gateway to Joy programs, devotionals, videos, and more. Hey, and leave us a review if you have time. It might encourage somebody else to check us out. Well, until next time, may God remind you daily you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are those everlasting arms.